0: Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. So for the mentor ESQ, I really wanted to bring a female attorney, a woman in the law to be a guest. And we haven't had a female attorney yet on the mentor ESQ. And I was wondering who would be the best first female lawyer guest to have in the studio. I want someone who I know well. I want someone who's powerful, who's really good at her job, who's been at the top of her field, who knows everything. And someone who could give back uh, her experiences and share them with all the lawyers listening out there, and especially the young women who are considering a field in law, who are practicing law, trying to find their way. And I came up with someone, and her name is Amy Richter. And she is sitting across the table from me right now. Very happy, happy to have you here. Thanks for coming today, Amy.
1: Hi, Andrew Smiley. <laughs> I'm very honored to be the first woman on podcast.
0: Yes, it's uh. You will always have that honor. I will. Uh, Hundred episodes in, we'll look back and remember that you were the first female attorney here. And, I, I know you really well, and I and I want to share the person you are and try and bring that out in this podcast. So I want you to be yourself. Amy's really funny <laughs> and uh, frank and cool, and so I want you to just sort of. Tell us about yourself. First of all, what type of law do you practice, Amy?
1: So I am a matrimonial attorney, which encompasses divorcing people and all kinds of family situations, which now there are many more than there used to be, as I think everyone kind of knows about.
0: Because now gay couples have the right to marry. Well, and
1: the definition of family is expanding, and yeah. it has been expanding for quite some time. So it's it, the, the world is opening up to a lot of different things that hadn't necessarily been there when I started doing this. 25 years ago.
0: And divorce law, you know, when I speak to lawyers and we talk about our clients and our clients calling us and I've got this crazy case and that crazy case, hands down, lawyers that practice in the field that you do of divorce law say it's just crazy because you have, you are in the middle of a war of these people who once probably loved each other and now are just fighting like crazy and you're one of the sweetest, nicest, happiest people I know. How do you how do you manage? And and, and you're one of the most high-profile attorneys in New York City that handle serious big money, big-ticket divorces with real angry, powerful litigants. How do you manage that?
1: You know something? It takes time to learn how to manage it. You know, you have to manage the clients, but you have to manage yourself. So I always find that, you know, you have to try to be the rational one and take the emotion out of it to help your clients understand the process. I mean, you're half therapist, definitely half lawyer. But if you really think about it, that this is a person in front of you who is probably in one of the worst times of their entire lives. And so I think it's important when you, if you recognize that as a person, then you can communicate with them as a client. And that's really important. In divorce law, the the attorney-client relationship, I mean, in all law, the attorney-client relationship is extremely important. But in this area, I think there's an extra layer of understanding that you have to have it's not just about money. It's about children and it's about family and it's about how they feel about themselves. It's about their life crumbling, possibly looking different than it's ever looked before. It's, it's, it's a really interesting area of practice. And you, you learn a lot about your clients and yourself when you handle these kinds of cases.
0: Do you, when you meet with potential clients who want to retain you, Are you selective with who you allow uh, to be your clients? Will you take any case? Do you have a threshold of a type of person or a type of case that you will get involved in and ones you won't get involved in?
1: Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of your career, you have less flexibility than you have later on in your career with picking clients because you don't have to take every person who walks into the door. And there are some cases that you can identify immediately are going to be a problem. You have to, in the first consultation, not just give information, but you're getting information. You're seeing if this person is going to listen to you. I mean, if it doesn't go both ways, it's not going to work. And I've had consultations where I knew immediately that this was not a client that was for for me or for anyone in my office, but there are other lawyers out there that I knew would be better for them. Some lawyers like high conflict, certain types of cases, some lawyers don't mind it's really hard to say in, in words sort of what you go through when you have a consultation like this. Um, but yes, the answer, the, the short answer is, is yes, you you can't take every client that walks, walks into your door.
0: Do you find that people want to use you as a weapon?
1: I think so. Yeah. I, and, and I think that that's something that you have to tell your client. I'm not a weapon, but I mean, I can be a weapon when it's necessary, but I don't always have to be a weapon. And that's something that I try to get across to not just to my clients, but to young people when I speak with them or groups. That our job is, yes, to maybe litigate on behalf of a client, but it's not It's not a tear the world down, take no prisoners approach all the time. That's not always the right approach. Sometimes you need a softer approach. And you know, I always say, when I'm in the courtroom, I'll be as ferocious as I have to be. That is why you come to me. But outside the courtroom, I don't have to... Get into a fistfight with my adversary to prove, you know, that I'm a better lawyer. It's, it's, it's. I think it's the tenor of a case, and sometimes the lawyers that make a case go well or make a case not go well.
0: I would tend to think that the the matrimonial law community here in New York City, and probably in in every city, is probably pretty small, and you run into the same lawyers over and over again. I do in personal injury law, but. You know, personal injury law is probably much greater in in scope of cases and law firms that defend and prosecute them. I would think you're in a smaller community where you cross paths quite often with the same adversaries. Yeah, it's
1: a, very, it's a very small group of people who are consistently doing these cases over and over in the courts in front of the same judges because we have dedicated judges, unlike other areas of law where you can go in and then you get sent out to a trial to maybe a judge you've never met or a part you've never been in we have dedicated judges in each courthouse that handle these cases and sometimes we're in front of these judges every day sometimes every week so it's it's a, it's a different it's a different kind of thing i mean you don't burn down the whole house to get what you need you have to figure out how to get what you need for your client in a way that works for everybody
0: now i know you to be sweet loving amy mm. and just a kind person but In the same breath, I would describe you as tough, and most people would. Oh, Amy, she's tough. Uh, You're a tough attorney, if not a tough—I don't think you're a tough woman. I think you're a tough attorney. You've held really high positions in the legal community. You've been the president of the Brooklyn Bar Association, which for those who don't know about the mass amount of people, just tell us how many people were at the annual gala when you presided as president.
1: Upwards of 900 people. Okay. I was the MC of an upwards of 900 people dinner.
0: Right. So you're overseeing, and that's just 900 people who came to the dinner in your honor as president of the Brooklyn Bar Association. And not only is it a huge organization that covers all areas of law, but Brooklyn is a tough place, right? I mean, Brooklyn, you have the old school lawyers, you have the old school Italians, the old school Jews. You picture you know, the boardroom of the Brooklyn Bar Association that's now renovated and nice. But it's very easy when you step foot in there to picture the days when it was a bunch of guys sitting around with cigars making deals. And, and they're still out there, right? There, it's, it, there's not as many. You and I know some of the old school guys. My father, Guy, who you know well, uh, was colleagues with a lot of them. And um, some are still out there. How does a, a, a female in the legal field rise through the ranks in a county like Brooklyn, a tough place to be a lawyer, a tough place with tough adversaries who are going to give you a hard time whether you're a man or a woman, and especially if you're a woman stepping into their world. How did you do it? How have you done it? How can you, how have you earned the respect of all of these lawyers, these tough guys, these tough judges? Tell me.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that because I got involved in the Brooklyn Bar Association when I was very young, in my right, right at the beginning of my career in my mid-20s, because my first mentor, Steve Cohn, who is a well-known attorney in Brooklyn, was very involved in the Brooklyn Bar Association. And when I started working for him, which was my first job out of law school, he said, this is where you need to go, and this is the group that you need to be involved in. And I said, okay. I'll do that. And then I said, well, what about the women's bar? Because the Brooklyn bar was sort of like the men's bar at that point. And he said, well, you could do that too if you want. So I remember I joined the women's bar also. And I went to the first women's bar meeting and I totally did not like it. Why not? I It was, it was just, it was like a lot of catty fighting high school stuff that I figured I had left behind when I left high school and I had no need to be a part of that. And I said, I think I'm going to focus on this group, which had its own, you know, issues at the time when I was applying to become a board member. As you said, Andrew, the boardroom's gigantic. It's this big room. I don't know how many, it's a hundred feet. It's just a huge room with a huge table and like 30 chairs and I had to go in for my interview and I walk in and it's filled with men. And I thought at the time, old men, now that I think about it, they're probably, they're probably younger than yeah. I am now. But at the time I went in and I looked to my left, bunch of old men. And I looked to my right, bunch of old men. And I said, gentlemen. And I commenced my interview with them to get onto the board. And that was sort of how it happened. How like, were
0: you received? Did they give you a hard time? They
1: laughed when I said that because they understood what I was saying. I th- I said it in such a way, you know, there's there's some ways to communicate humor without making it sound like humor and people get it. You know, I find that very helpful in court when I'm on trial.
0: So then you got on the board. I got on the board. And how did you assert yourself in this, uh, I was, in this I was, realm?
1: I was an active member for many years. I started getting involved in committees. Um, I started getting involved at the matrimonial committee. I started doing CLEs. I started getting involved in the intricacies of the Bar Association and becoming literally colleagues and friends with these men. And over the years, the complexion of our group has changed greatly with, you know, a push towards diversity, not just women, but people of color and gay people and, you know, minorities. Our board has a very, very different complexion now than it did than it did then. I'm proud of that. I mean, and I think that I was one of the the early people to start saying that we need to do that because you need ideas from everybody, not just, you know, the old school ideas that really were at play back in the early 90s when this was happening. But I was only the ninth female president of the Brooklyn Bar Association out of 101 presidents. Wow. Think about that.
0: And Uh, it had been, is it a one-year term? It was over a hundred-year existence?
1: It's a one-year term. I was the ninth woman. That's not a lot of women for, for 101 presidents. And I experienced, even now, some interesting things. I had, I'll never forget it, when I was president, I would go to all these events, you know, we have to go to other bar events, uh, inductions of presidents, court events, and someone might inevitably introduce me to a male colleague or a judge that I didn't know or someone, and they would say, this is Amy Richter, she's president of the Bar Association. And the first thing they would say to me is, oh, you're president of the women's bar?
0: Huh.
1: And I would, they would automatically assume it was the women's bar. And I would say, no the Brooklyn bar and they would take a step back and say, Oh, like somehow that was more impressive by the way, you know, it was something that, and it happened over and over, which is interesting.
0: Do you find still that there's prejudice against female attorneys?
1: I think that there is bias against women and other groups. And I think that some of it, that the men don't even know that, that they have the bias. I I think it's, I think it's just the way that people grew up. They don't even understand that what they're saying could be offensive.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: I'll give you an example. There was a Supreme Court justice of the United States with me in a private room. I was having an event and she came to my event, to my bar association. And you're going to tell us who? I'm not. (laughs) And I'm not not (laughs) going to tell you who the second party is, but a a gentleman who is very, very well-known gentleman, very smart, nice guy, involved, wonderful. I mean, I consider him one of my mentors and a lovely man, could never say a bad thing about him, walked in. And the first thing that he said to her was, you look even more pretty in person than you do in your picture. Okay. Or you're more attractive in person than you are in your picture. And I cringed. And I'm sure that she did too. That could give you a clue. Yes. But I mean, he did not think that that was a, a bad thing to say. And he didn't mean it to be a bad thing. He actually thought that was a lovely thing to say to a woman who you respect, that you look better in person than you do in your picture. Right. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that we, you know. That comes with age and change. In other words, the younger generation of men are not the same as the old generation of men that sat in Brooklyn with the cigars. We're, we're dealing, right. we're dealing with a with a different world now. But those guys, those guys who have I've grown up with, have been nothing but helpful to me in my career. But I think they think a certain way, and they're not going to change that. You know, so bias. Do I think it's done on purpose? No. Do I think that there is bias against women? Possibly. Probably. If you look at the salary, you know, disconnect between men and women in the same jobs, is out there. But I think as more people talk about it and give these classes on bias and the importance of, of diversity, I think it's going to start to change. I've seen it change. It's not changed enough, but I've definitely seen it change over the years.
0: Why do you think it is that back when we were in law school a couple of decades ago, this day, I think that law school um, attendance is pretty split 50-50 male-female. But when you go into a courthouse or you're out in the legal world or in organizations, it's so still so heavily male dominated. Yeah. What's that all about?
1: I, I think there's I think there's two things. I think that women, unfortunately, just as a as they're about to hit the stride in their career and when they're 10 years in or maybe 15 years in, and it's time to become a partner in the big law firm, or it's time to take a leadership role in whatever, they decide that they want to have children. And that's a real step back for them because as much as everyone says, when you have a child, you can go out on maternity leave and come back, the world still doesn't see it that way. And there's been, the State Bards did a very, very uh, intense and and uh, overreaching study about women in the law, and it found something like something like 40% of, of women who hit their sh- at that age where the earning potential comes and the partnership comes, they opt out. They do it themselves because they don't want to deal with that and they have to deal with that. And it's I think it's very difficult to operate in sort of a man's world when you want to raise a family because your family has to have some priority there and there's no room for that.
0: Do you think ultimately a choice is forced upon women at a certain phase of their legal career where if they want to take it to the next level as far as uh, leadership positions in a law firm and organizations and building business and clientele and really becoming known in their field where they have to choose between family and career?
1: I think so. I I think the men have an easier path to choosing between family and career. I don't think they have to choose. I think they get to go out and work and do what they do. And hopefully for them, they have a spouse. It could be a man or a woman. I mean, at this point, like I said, the world is changing at home. Who takes care of those things or someone else? I think I think it's really different. And, you know, part of it also is clients. So it's not just necessarily that the bad guys here are, are employers or the heads of law firms. Clients, you say, you know, in court, you see less female litigators there's been studies done by that too, and, and some federal judges have chimed in on it lately. There have been articles in in the law journal about how women are not giving the chance to advocate to be litigators in the courtroom, and they and the law firms say, "Well, the the clients don't want them. The clients want the men." And I think it's a it's a question of how. How we get everyone to see that there really is no difference between men and women in a courtroom. A courtroom is a battlefield. It's a chess game. It doesn't matter if you're male or if you're female. You have to know how to do it. You have to know how to maneuver. You're not going to get a ruling because you're a male or a female. You're going to get a ruling because you know the right the right questions to ask and you know the right answers to the questions.
0: Right. Now I know you don't have children. Uh, I know you have children of the furry kind uh, that we'll talk about at another <laughs> point, but. Was that, do you feel that not having to either make a choice or did you make a choice that by not having a family that you had to get home to, you would be able to excel further in your career? I,
1: I don't know that I made a a choice that I actually thought about, a conscious choice, you know, but I ended up not getting married till I was older. That was a choice. And I focused, I was 40 when I got married and I really focused on my career all that time. And I had the ability to do that. Shout out to Chuck. Shout out to my poor husband. (laughs) And I'm, you know, it does make a difference that I would never see a child. I come home at night, eight, nine, 10 o'clock, almost every night, whether I'm doing work in the office or I have an, you know, an activity, a bar association event, a dinner with colleagues, you know, a, a client engagement thing. I mean, there's always something. And I think it's very hard. I think it's really, really very hard, but we all find ways to, to make up for what you lose in other places, right? So I have a niece that I love and my husband's niece and nephew who are my niece and nephew. So we get kids there and we have friends' kids, of course, it's the cats, but you know, yeah, I think, I think that that is something that women have to contend with that men don't.
0: You mentioned Steve Cohn, a prominent attorney in Brooklyn, who's your first employer out of law school, who really gave you that intro into the power broker world, right? Right. Do you feel that if you didn't have that intro and him vouching for you, things would have been a lot different?
1: I do. I think that the first 10 years of my career with Steve were so incredibly important for my growth, because he was able to teach me things, not even lawyer things necessarily, but as a mentor to show me, you know, how you go out there into the world, how you meet people, how you talk to people, how you get clients. I mean, all that was something that I learned from him. When I first started working for him, it was September. And in October he has, and he still has it to this day, this yearly event Called Friends of Steve Cohen. It's it's like a breakfast. It's a pre-election breakfast. So I guess it's in it's in November or end of at October. At juniors. At juniors, I've right? Been there. So I'll never forget it. The first time I was working for him for about six weeks, he says, "Come on, we're going to, we're going to this thing." And I walked in, and I don't know, there had to be three hundred, four hundred people crammed into this little space, and they're all the politicians in Brooklyn and Manhattan, and the mayor, and the judge, and the governor, and there's all these people, and I'm like. I felt like I was on another planet and I was standing in a corner because I didn't know anybody. And I was like, Oh my God, this was so painful, but he took me around and he introduced me to people. And I always said, I thank Steve Cohen for teaching me how to work a room. Right. I said that at my induction as president of the Brooklyn Bar association. I mean, there is nothing that I learned more in those first years than how to navigate my way through a room filled with politicians, a room filled with lawyers and judges, a room filled with potential clients. You know, just whatever the room is, how are you going to navigate that as a young lawyer without the help of someone who can show you how it works? It's so incredibly important.
0: And you can't learn that in law school.
1: No, can't learn that in law school. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think personally, young lawyers need to think about and and need to really focus on because, you know, you don't learn how to walk a room by sitting in your room on the internet.
0: Right, we didn't have that as law students and young lawyers. We didn't have our, we didn't have smartphones. We had the flip phones, which most people listening probably don't even know what we're talking about. And uh, there was no email back then, That's right. and it was just coming about. And we were much more with our face-to-face interactions, lunches, drinks, social events. Whereas now it's a lot easier to just hide behind a laptop, right? Right.
1: We had to, we had no, we had no choice. You were either out or you were in. There wasn't in on your, on your Instagram or on your Facebook or emailing and texting. We just didn't have that. And if you wanted to meet somebody, you had to go out and meet somebody. So I think that is the reason that bar associations in general are declining. They're in decline, all of them, from the American Bar Association you know, down to the local, local, local bar associations, all yeah. the way from the top to the bottom, memberships yeah. declining. And it's important, I I think, that, you know, young lawyers become involved in these things because they need to get out there. That's how you learn.
0: Now you're the, the woman in the room with the judges and the politicians. And I think you were even just traveling in Morocco with some members of the, the judiciary. And, I was. And how to. How does that even happen? I mean, I couldn't even imagine. I I have some friends on the bench, but I could never see myself trooping through Morocco with a bunch of judges. (laughs) I did. What was that like? That was
1: amazing. We were all on camels and uh, ATVs. And you know, I was asked to join and I thought, you know what? Why not? It sounds like an amazing trip. This is a great bunch of people. And it's funny that you say that because my first thought was, oh, Oh, gee, like, what do I call them? <laughs> like, am I going to go through my vacation saying judge this and judge that? Did so, you? I did not. I called everybody by their first names on our trip because it would have been weird otherwise. But I, but, funny story. I'm in court today, okay? I have the judge. We're in the back during a conference. My adversary and the judge happen to have the same first name, okay? So there's a bottle of water on the table, and we're walking out, and I say, Michael, is that your bottle of water? And they both turn around. They, and I said, no, judge, I wasn't talking to you. I wouldn't call you by your first name. I think it's about respect. Yeah. In other words, I have friends that are judges that are my personal friends that I could call up on the phone. But when, I, when we're in a courtroom setting or a group setting with other lawyers around and other people, I always call them judge. I think, I think it's, it's about respect. They earned that title. They earned that respect.
0: And do you actively live your uh, professional existence, knowing how having a mentor helped open up doors for you to the point that you look for opportunities to help younger lawyers and specifically female attorneys. Do you, do you look for that more so than uh, maybe others?
1: I do. I do. I, I, You know, it's, it's hard to know what draws people to each other. You know, I listened to your podcast and you spoke about your dad being your mentor. And I mean, that's like the ideal situation, right? right? But for some of us, I came into the legal profession. I didn't know any lawyers. I had no lawyers in my family. I didn't even know what a lawyer was. I don't know how I ended up in law school, but you know, how we are drawn to certain people and the connections that we have and continue to have, you can have mentors over your entire life, you know. It's something that it's it, there's no word for it. It's kind of you know ubiquitous. The so ubiquitous.
0: Ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, it's, ubiquitous.
1: You don't know where it comes from, and and I find you find people you don't know what the why or, you know I um I'm on character and fitness for the second department, so I get to interview new law students who just passed the bar, and I have to decide whether they can go on and become attorneys after. You know, after their application is in and I have an interview. Does
0: anybody ever really fail that?
1: Believe it or not, yes. Wow. Yeah. Some people get sent to a committee. That's a different podcast. That's a whole different podcast. (laughs) So, say I see 100 young people in a year, maybe it's 50 a year, so in two years. Out of those 100, three of them will spark my interest for whatever the reason, right? There's just something about them. And one of them, I got a job because I didn't, I wasn't hiring. So I thought she was great. And I gave, you know, sent her to someone else and I still keep in touch with her. One of them, I had into my office and I said, okay, when we're ready, I'm going to call you. You know, I think we have to give back. And they happen to all be women, by the way, just, you know, to, to wrap it up. I I think that women should help other women.
0: What would your advice be to young women out there listening who are in law school, who are working maybe as attorneys, not necessarily thrilled with where they are or who they're working for, of, you know, what to look for in their profession, in their career? What guidance tips do you have?
1: I think that you have to be true to yourself. I think that don't stay in a place where you're miserable for many, many, many years because you're wasting your time and you don't know where you're going to end up. And that every single opportunity that comes your way, take it. And the one that scares you the most, take that first, because those are the things that move you along into where you may end up. And you just don't, don't know where that is. I mean, it's hard to say. And I say, be yourself. You know, don't, don't be like anyone else. I, you know, no, no one else is going to be as good at being you as you are. And, right. that's, and that's who you should be.
0: Amy, how do you personally define a successful attorney?
1: My definition of a successful attorney is somebody who cares about their clients because at the end of the day, that's what we're here for, to represent and help people through whatever it is that we're helping them through and coupled with someone who has the knowledge to get them through whatever they need and to understand that you you don't know everything. Even now, I don't know everything. Keep learning, keep reading, give classes, take classes. I just ordered a book the other day on trial skills just because- because I want to read another book about, you know, there's one thing in that book that I didn't know or one tip that I decide to use that I haven't used before, it, it's helpful. And I, I think that that's the definition. Someone who doesn't think they know it all. Someone who who believes in the law and in people and who wants to genuinely help and who wants to be as good as they could possibly be.
0: Well, I mean, I think you fit that definition to a T as a successful attorney I just think wow. you're an amazing person, a great lawyer. My wife and I have been married for 17 years and plan to be married many, many, many more. But we joke, we're both socially friends with you. And we always say, we fight over you. We say, if we get divorced, I say, I'm getting Amy. My <laughs> wife says, no, I'm getting Amy. Who are you kidding? So if I put you on the spot, who, who would you take? as the client? Is it me or my wife?
1: Oh boy, that's one of those, you know, tough questions.
0: Or do you just send us to someplace else? I
1: send you both someplace else.
0: <laughs> well, fortunately, we don't have to worry about that happening. Amy, it's so great to have you here. I'd love it if you'd come back because I have some things I want to just chat about with you that maybe we can explore in another podcast. episode.
1: I'm afraid, but but I'll, I'll come back. All I will. Right.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us your thoughts.
1: You're very welcome.
0: And I uh, thank you all for listening to us on this podcast and getting to hear from my dear friend, Amy Richter. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mentor ESQ. If you did enjoy it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd review us, give us a good rating, forward this podcast to your classmates and your friends and your family members. And I look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. I am Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor ESQ.